Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Dance your anger and your joys. Dance the military funds to silence. Dance the dumb laws to the dumb. Dance oppression and injustice to death. Dance, my people, for we have seen tomorrow, and there is an Ogoni star in the sky. This was a poem. These are the words of Ken Saroviva. Ken Saroviva, Bari name Kiobel, Saturday Dobi, Paul Lebura, Nodu Iavo, Felix Noate, Daniel Gaboko, John Kapunen, Bari Borbera. These were nine people of the movement of the survival of the Ogoni people, Ogoni folks, who were falsely implicated in a charge for killing four Ogoni chiefs. The trial went on, and in 1995, on the 10th of November, in spite of international pressure from Commonwealth, from President Clinton at that time, Prime Minister Major at that time, the dictator at that time who ruled Nigeria, Sani Abacha, ignored them, disregarded those pleas, and they were executed. It was a hugely important moment for the understanding of business and human rights. Amnesty International, one of the world's leading human rights organizations, started a process soon after that to develop human rights principles for companies. Human Rights Watch prepared a report called The Price of Oil that the oil price is not measured in dollars and cents, but sometimes with blood and sometimes with devastated countryside. And it also forced people to look at ways to bring about corporate accountability. Campaigning is all very well, but maybe litigation is a way forward. And the other way was for certain governments to think that this is so crucial and so critical that we have to think beyond traditional ways of bringing about accountability and looking at newer ways of looking at how we can do something to bring about corporate accountability and bringing about uh, some kind of remedy and some justice for the victims of human rights abuses. I'm talking today with Nimo Basi. Nimo is not a stranger at all to the Institute for Human Rights and Business and its work. Uh, he is, of course, uh, a winner of the RAFTO Prize. He's a human rights defender and environmental activist. He is in Nigeria and he's joining us from there to tell us a bit more about the importance of Ken Saroviva and his associates, and what the whole corporate accountability movement is all about. Nemo, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about Ken. Who was he, and why does he matter? Thank you so much, Salil. Um, Ken Saroviva is a central figure in environmental justice movement, not just in Nigeria, but across Africa. Uh, he was a writer a playwright, a poet, a politician, and a businessman. You could imagine all this role into one person. Uh, he, his, his role in elevating the struggle for environmental justice for the Ogoni people is so central, uh, as well as elevating the cultural rights as minorities in Nigeria. Uh, these were the two things he was looking at environmental justice, control of Ogoni resources in Ogoni land, as well as basic respect and dignity for the Ogoni people. And he did this very selflessly. He invested his resources, his time, his creativity, and almost most of his writings were, were towards this goal, to elevate the dignity of the people, uh, to demand for environmental justice, and also basic human rights. And many of his writings kind of, um, uh, I would say, spoke about how he would end up himself. There's a short story he wrote called Africa Kills Her Son, S-U-N. And, you know, kind of people who were fighting for, characters who were fighting for justice, for basic dignity, for the rights of the people. Uh, people who, who were very selfless, were not so much concerned with their own personal uh, well-being, so to speak. And then at the end, they were executed, executed just like he was. 
Now, Kentarewa was a leader of the movement for the survival for Goni people, MOSOP, M-O-S-O-P. And he was one of the architects of the Ogoni Bill of Rights. The Ogoni Bill of Rights is a charter of demands that the Ogoni people prepared and sent to the Nigerian military government in 1990, asking for stating out the, clear, the, the demands they made they were making for the, the Nigerian state. Uh, and that, that document inspired other ethnic nationalities in Niger Delta to also produce their, their charters of demand. For example, we had the Oron Bill of Rights, we had the Kayama Declaration of Enjoy Young People, and we had the Orobo Economic Summit uh, demands and many other demands like of that nature. Uh, so he, he was an intellectual activist. He, he believed it was he was a man of peace. He called himself a man of peace, and that's what he was. Uh, in fact, in the in the mobilization of Ogoni people that led to the expulsion of Shell from Ogoni land in 1993, he said that Ogoni people will fight peacefully and they will stay resolute, non-violently, not one blood drop of blood will be shed, and they would win. But unfortunately, uh, the state framed him and eight other Ogoni leaders. They were accused of uh, I mean, nine or other Ogoni leaders, uh, they were accused of killing uh, four Ogoni chiefs uh, that many of us believe, we believe uh, these were, they were not killed by, of course they were not killed by Sarawiwa and the Ogoni leaders. Uh, they, were, they, they were murdered to trigger this kind of repression across Ogoni land. And so it was made, here his colleagues made, were made to face a military tribunal, a kangaroo court and the court eventually passed a death sentence on nine of them, uh, including Kensawi one, eight other leaders. And the, the funny thing is that that, that kind of judgment, the tribunal by, by, by military law uh, provided a period of time for those who were condemned to death to make an appeal. And within the period, and during this time they were to be given the the judgment and all the writings from the court so that they could defend themselves. But before any of this could be done, they were hung by the Nigerian state, which was very, very sad in the face of uh, international appeals and condemnations. It was at a time the, United, the Commonwealth was meeting, I think in Australia. Uh, and at that same time, while Mandela and the rest were making appeals, the Nigerian military got him executed. So this, uh, memorial, the 25th memorial, we are careful not to call it anniversary because anniversary has a sense of celebration, uh, but this is a thing of pain. Uh, the, the key thing for us is that we don't just want to remember, remember 25 years, we want the Nigerian state to declare, to exonerate, exonerate him and the other Goni leaders who were executed for no reason whatsoever. That is a very, very uh, important point because you know you cannot really move on uh, from the past without acknowledging the wrong that was done. So that's a very fair point. But Nigeria is right now undergoing a lot of pressure politically and there have been uh, political controversy going on, riots going on. Are you optimistic? If, if Ken were here with us today, what would he be doing? Uh, if Ken if he had been here with us, he would have been a 79 year old man. She would have been a man of more wisdom than he had in those days. And so he would have, his home would have been a place of pilgrimage for activists and for everybody because he was everybody's man. Uh, I believe that if he were around today, he would still be making the same demands he made 25 years ago because things have not shifted. The only thing that has shifted over the years from is that in 2011, the United Nations Environment Program issued a report on the assessment of Ogoni environment, and that report completely validated everything that yeah, vindicated all his work. Yeah, all the pollution, uh, and in fact, um, some of the thing, key highlights of that report is that in some places in Ogoni land, uh, they have the groundwater with benzene 900 times above World Health Organization standard. Uh, they also said that in some places in Ogoni land the hydrocarbons as crude oil has sunk up to a depth of five meters. And that, that is incredible. But recently when I visited, they, because a kind of cleanup has kind of commenced, a process has commenced to clean up Ogoni land. I went to one of the lots where they had excavated and treated the soil and the pollution between 2011 and, and this year had gone down to 10 meters, mm -hmm. which is really scary. 
which means the more pollution is allowed to fester, the more the contamination gets uh, gets mm -hmm. entrenched. Yeah, so so the th things are still, Ogoni people are still demanding that the oil wells in Ogoni territory should not be reopened. Uh, at least the place has to be cleaned up and the UNEP has said it would take at least 30 years to clean up mm -hmm. and remediate and restore the environment. So for anybody to think of reopening the oil wells now, it's like opening the tap and then trying to dry the floor at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And how have the companies uh, behaved? Um, has the situation changed? Have they learned from the past? Do you see improved practices? Because what we do see is that there have been several initiatives since then, and we will be talking about it in the course with uh, in other panels uh, as we go along. But I was just curious, uh, do you think that their corporate practices have changed in terms of consultation, in terms of cleaner practices? Um, well, you know, you're asking the wrong man this question. <laughs> ah, you're the right man for me. Yeah, okay, all right, thank you, because I, I actually don't believe that oil corporations operating in Nigeria can ever do anything right. Uh, they have been very influential over the laws. Most of the laws governing the activity was drawn up during the Nigerian Civil War, uh, which was in the late 1960s. Uh, and, and those laws were, were drawn up for operations in a conquered territory. And so the people were not consulted, the environment was not considered. And so the oil companies are busy running on that same platform. Uh, recently, <clears throat> recently, a few weeks, currently, there's a petroleum industry bill which has been in the works for over a decade. A new version has been sent to the National Assembly and they're considering it. And one key thing is about how oil companies relate to the communities. Uh, what that bill specifies is that the oil companies have to carry out some uh, social, corporate social responsibility activities with the communities, with host communities, and the host com the question of who is the host community is to be determined by the oil companies. And I think this is a booby trap because if the oil companies are the ones that determine who is the uh, host community, then the divide and rule would persist in the region. Uh, because we all know that the fact that an oil well is located where my laptop is now doesn't mean that the oil is sitting right under my laptop. There's a horizontal drilling, you can put the oil rig somewhere and drill the oil from somewhere else. And then using the rig location as the as the host community, we kind of not consider those other places where the resource may actually be coming from. And always, uh, my position is that host communities are both those who host the oil companies and those who host the pollution. Uh, there's an example of a community in Ogoni land called Goi. Goi had a massive, um, I was fed a massive oil spill in 2004, 2005, and, and a fire that accompanied it. And actually most of the people of Goi community in Ogoni are now refugees in other locations because their village was burned down. They don't have an oil well, they don't have any pipeline passing there, they don't have a flow station, nothing. No oil coming presence. But they have a creek system that has it that goes to tidal flow. So pollution somewhere else is brought by the creek to this community. And, and so definition of who the community is should never be left to the oil companies. It's something that government ought, should define. And I believe civil society are making that demand uh, as the as the bill is being considered, uh, and so now uh, the only thing that something that has changed, I would say, over the years, uh, is that oil companies are, are are quicker now to acknowledge acknowledge when an oil spill occurs, and that could also because be because Nigeria has an agency called the National Oil Spills Detection and Response Agency, which is which always tries to put the, their eyes on the ground. To announce when there's an oil spill. So there's a quicker response in terms of acknowledging the spill, not in terms of cleanup. Uh, I don't think there's any good cleanup going on anywhere uh, in areas where new oil spills are occurring. And this, this national agency informed that in 2018 and 2019, Nigeria had 1,300 oil spills, coming down to about five oil spills a day. Now that is extremely scandalous. Uh, it shows that oil spill is a routine thing in the Niger Delta, although the corporations uh, claim that most of them are caused by third party interferences or, by, or also by sabotage. But the claim of sabotage is what was in the, the law, was in the laws when the oil companies can say this is sabotage, then they are not responsible in terms of compensation for the harm done and in some other ways to respond to it. So they, they hide behind that to keep claiming sabotage. But I do think that the oil companies have also won a big 
communications uh, war or coup, you may call it, because really they, they've, they've been very, very strong at having journalists uh, focus on the pollution caused by third party interferences. And so whenever you talk about oil spills these days, the imagination of most people is that this is caused by community people. But if you consider how much oil is being stolen and unaccounted for the Nagidata, you find that the spills and the theft is going on at industrial scale. This cannot be done by poor community people. It's done by people with industry knowledge, people with, who can have security cover, people who have political cover. And so it's a massive thing going on. And we're talking about different figures that are so enormous that many countries don't produce as much as that. And there's no correct metering of the oil fields. So one cannot really say how much is precisely extracted, how much is exported, and what is coming to the state. So we're running in a system where the bottom of the bucket is more or less out. So the demands of Ken Salawiwa and, and, and his colleagues who started campaign for environmental justice is still as valid today as it was many years ago. It's very sobering what you just said and uh, chastening, and it just shows that the work is not complete, not done, the struggle will go on. And uh, the only thing I can say is that, you know, it's wonderful that there are people like you who are focusing on the tasks ahead and continuing to remind Nigeria that economic progress is not measured only in terms of barrels of oil and GDP, but on the way the people in the Delta live, the way the people throughout the country live. Thank you. Absolutely, thanks a lot. I have a very distinguished panel today with me. Uh, they are all people who had known of Ken's work, who have been working on business and human rights for many years, and who have felt strongly about it. They have been with this struggle for a long time, and they've also been working towards corporate accountability. Over the next hour, what we will be doing is talking about what happened then, what was the impact that followed, and what can we learn from that and how much remains to be done. The friends I'm going to be speaking with are Paul Hoffman, who led not just the Viva versus Shell case, but he was also involved with the Kiobel case at the US Supreme Court, which looked at the alien tort statute and what that does for corporate accountability. We are very fortunate also to have Bronwyn Manbe joining us. Bronwyn was one of the principal authors of the report, The Price of Oil, which focus global attention on business and human rights and talk about what happened there and how, what was the view from abroad and how did the international human rights community react to it. And we have Bennett Freeman. Bennett Freeman was at that time a senior official at the US State Department. And he thought, wouldn't it be nice that when there are governments which are unwilling or unable to do what they ought to do for protect human rights, wouldn't it be nice if those some governments where these companies are headquartered some of the companies which want to change and turn a new corner and some human rights NGOs come together and create a mechanism that leads us towards some kind of justice. We'll have a broad ranging discussion and we'll, I want to keep it in a conversational tone so there are no opening remarks as such, but just as a leading way to start, I thought I'll start with you, Bronwyn. Yes. You wrote the report and uh, what led you to it? I mean, you, traditionally human rights organizations, as we know, look at the state as the party, which has all the obligations, which is legally true. But this was a unique situation and focusing on Nigeria and focusing on oil became crucial. So your thoughts on both what led you to do it and your thoughts on what Ken Saruiwa meant. So at the time Ken Saruiwa was executed, I was actually working for lawyers for human rights in South Africa. I had a connection to Human Rights Watch already. Um, and I should give credit to my predecessor who wrote about the Ogoni crisis, Vanessa Crow. Um, but I, and the first connection I had with the Sarah Weaver case was uh, Lawyers of Human Rights facilitated advocacy with the South African government by some visiting Nigerian human rights activists. So during the period of the Commonwealth Summit, when the Commonwealth heads of state uh, pro uh, protested, Mandela famously uh, uh, attacked Abacha for the, for the execution. I mean, nobody could quite believe that you know, the death penalty had been pronounced, but nobody could actually believe they were really going to be executed. And so I, my, my first awareness really of the, of the of Ken Sarawiwa, I mean, obviously I followed the news, but the first, my first direct engagement was around, was around that process of trying to get the new South African government to take some action and to uh, uh, put pressure on the Nigerian government in the Commonwealth Summit and elsewhere. Uh, I um, 
rejoined uh, Human Rights Watch uh, the following year, towards the end of the following year, uh, and started work on Nigeria. It was a period of military dictatorship, so I was working on general military issues. But the situation in the Niger Delta remained, of course, completely critical. Um, there were new people coming up, organizing, trying to challenge the oil companies. So even though uh, your, your Goni uh, crisis, it wasn't like the crisis was over, but it was quieter because of the devastation of the, the, the leadership had been taken out. The, it was really, but the organization had been severely weakened, but other parts of the Niger Delta began to organize as well. And I spent, uh, you know, it, it, it was logical to pick up on the work and to think about it. And I think that, I mean, what Sarawiwa did was make that almost inevitable, that, you know, the amount of focus on his activism, on his uh, execution, meant that the eyes of the world had been pulled to the Niger Delta and what actually was going on. So writing further about the Niger Delta was uh, you know, something that had to be done. How it turned into a large report called The Price of Oil, looking much more broadly at the issues around environment and uh, economic and social rights and so forth, was an interesting process of discussion. And I think, uh, so the way, you know, if you are a human rights nerd, you can pass that report and see which sections. So there are some, there are some parts of the report that I wrote as being the substantive part of the report that became background, for example, because for Human Rights Watch to write a report that directly challenged the oil companies and directly talked about environmental pollution was a very new step for us at the time. It was the first report that Human Rights Watch did actually engage directly in, in looking at the responsibility of corporations. And so there was a there was a really, I mean, my first draft went to the legal office who said, I don't think we can publish this. We, we can't say this stuff. It's not our mandate as Human Rights Watch. We need to look at what the state is doing. And how do we how do we talk about corporations? So there was a long period of discussion about how to do that. And in the context of Nigeria, I think there are two uh, I mean, you know, two good reasons for doing that. One is the oil companies are directly responsible for a lot of bad things that go on in Niger, Niger Delta. And the other part is that while if you are in the context of a military government. Uh, in Nigeria, the monetary government had demonstrated itself to be completely impervious to international public opinion by indeed executing Kensarawiwa. And the oil companies at least were a mechanism of leverage to try to address some questions in the context of a government that was completely impossible to reach in other ways. And so I think those that was the, the reasoning behind it. Um, and the, the, the purpose as well was to create a narrative about why this is a human rights problem, why it's not just environment, why it's not just economics, why it's not just development, why is this a human rights problem? And that was really the, the objective of the report. No, what you said, Bronwyn, resonates because I was a researcher at Amnesty International a little later, but uh, 1999 is when I started there. And same kind of questions, because when we were, after my first visit to the Niger Delta and when we wrote the report, some of the legal colleagues quite genuinely uh, raised the question exactly on the same line that uh, this, these are the responsibility of the of the Nigerian state and why are we calling on the company to do this? Uh, aren't we giving a free pass to the state? And Paul, you will recall some of those conversations because you were the chair of the International Executive Council of Amnesty at that time, and which is how we first met about 20 something years ago. And I was just curious about um, what led you as somebody who felt strongly about the case actually to think in terms of litigation as a way to bring about uh, change in this context. In the, and if you can also explain, because we have uh, viewers from around the world, what is the alien tort statute? I mean, how can a company which does, which is a Dutch British company doing something in Nigeria, why should the US court be worried about it? Well, I mean, the alien tort statute is a is a law that was passed in 1789 as part of the first statute that was passed by the US Congress. And it gave non-citizens the ability to bring cases in the newly created federal courts for torts committed in violation of the law of nations. And there are very few cases in the beginning. And so the, the actual meaning of the statute has been shrouded in some mystery and some debate. But in, uh, in 1980, uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights brought a landmark case against a torturer from Paraguay 
who was found living in Brooklyn, a case called Philartiga. And the courts found that the statute did apply in US courts in the modern times. And that if you had a non-citizen a plaintiff that found the perpetrator of a human rights violation, a violation of the law of nations um, in the United States at least, um, that they could bring a claim against them. And for the period from, I would say 1980 to the mid 1990s, um, a lot of the cases that we brought were brought against people like Ferdinand Marcos, uh, torturers that were found living in Georgia. Um, there were cases around the country where we were pretty successful in getting courts to apply the statute um, when perpetrators were found in the United States um, and, and their victims could bring cases against them. In the mid-1990s, we, we decided, and this sort of coincided with the debates that were going on in Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and other um, um, human rights organizations, um, that corporations had an enormous amount of power um, and were often complicit in human rights violations committed by governments and sometimes were committing them or, or aiding and abetting them themselves. Um, and so one of the first big cases was a case called Doe versus Unical, which was filed in the mid 1990s. Um, and that had to do with torture and summary execution and forced labor on a pipeline project in Burma. Um, and that suit ultimately was successful in the sense that there was a settlement in the mid 2000s. Um, and and this and and the the um, the execution of the Agoni Nine coincided with that um, decision to bring cases against corporations and to try to use the Alien Tort Statute as a a mechanism of corporate accountability. Um, and I think that the 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 WeWa case had a certain power, particularly within the US legal system and the US political legal culture that a lot of the other cases didn't have because the story was so powerful um, that Ken Sarawiwa's legacy was so strong. Um, and it, it goes to your question of how could US courts assert um, jurisdiction? Well, you know, we, we got jurisdiction over the parent companies of Shell because there was an investor office in New York um, I'm not sure we would be able to do that anymore, but, and originally the case was dismissed for lack of personal jurisdiction and for the argument that the cases should have been brought either in, in Holland or in, in the UK. Um, but the second circuit reversed that. And I think part of the reason they reversed it was the story of Ken Sarawi, the facts. Well, in a lot of these cases, the, the facts wind up convincing judges, they convince people that support the litigation. And I think that the WeWa litigation always was strong because of the, the narrative, because of what happened. Um, that got us through discovery battles. It got us through you know the various motions that Shell brought to dismiss the case, which they did all the time. They tried to bury us in paper. Um, and ultimately the case was settled in 2009 after 14 years. And I think one of the reasons Shell wound up settling actually was there was a, uh, Ken Sarawiwa Jr. Was, was a leader in the, in the litigation. I think he was able to convey the power of his father's legacy in ways that probably very few other people could. Even Owens Wewa was, um, Ken Sarawiwa's brother was a plaintiff. He did the same, but Ken Sarawiwa Jr. had a certain charisma that I think his father had too. And um, I remember the New York Times doing a major piece right before we were scheduled to go to trial. And it was after that piece and after Ken Sarawiwa's interviews, Ken Sarawiwa Jr.'s interviews that, that Shell started to talk about settlement um, and tried to reach an agreement with us. Because I think they were afraid of a trial that would have laid out their complicity with the Nigerian government in, in, in bringing about 
the execution. Um, and so, you know, it was, a, I think, a very powerful case. Uh, it's one of the few cases that did reach a settlement and a settlement that included a fund for people other than the plaintiffs in the case. Um, Ken Sarawiwa Jr., I think, in a lot of our discussions about whether to settle or whether to go through the trial, Ken Sarawiwa Jr. talked a lot about his father's legacy and about what a settlement might mean and, and about the fact that the struggle's never over, right? I mean, I'm about to argue the latest in this series of cases, Doe versus Nestle, in the Supreme Court on December 1st, where right around the same time, well, actually, I guess it was 2005, right about the, um, that time, we brought this case against the chocolate companies for their complicity in child slavery in Ivory Coast, another problem that seems to be impossible to solve. Um, and we're going up against the chocolate companies in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's not a particularly favorable place. But what I take from Ken Sarawiwa's legacy when where you started in terms of the most um, uh, admonitions is that no one, we're not going to stop. I mean, if they take away the alien tort statute, then there'll be other ways to do it. We, we have cases where um, they've taken away the alien tort statute and we brought claims based on foreign law. For example, in Doe versus Exxon, we, our case is based on Indonesian law. Um, in a case called Doe versus Chiquita about mass murder in the banana growing fields in Colombia, it's based on Colombian law. Um, and so the movement that started with these cases in which Ken Sarawiwa's legacy and memory played such a major role won't stop, right? And, and so I think that's the lesson that I take from it. And I think one of the things I do in my classes when I teach young lawyers about what they should be doing, um, I talk about Ken Sarawiwa and a lot of them were born since Ken Sarawiwa's execution. But that story still has power. Um, and I think it helps inspire uh, lawyers that, young lawyers that are interested in doing this kind of work to keep doing it, notwithstanding the obstacles and the difficulties and the challenges that we face. Thank you, Paul. And Bennett, you heard both Bronwyn and Paul uh, laying out the limitations. And you, know, you are in a government. Um, you want to see the potential of what can be done. And the president at the time tries to influence the other government and it does not make any difference. And you want to step in and you want to see how one can create a mechanism, some way of moving forward so that we have corporate accountability. Walk us through that story because it's very inspiring. No, thank you, thank you, Salil. And um, the, the power of the story is, as Paul just put it, um, cannot be understated. Um, the tragedy of Ken Sarwiwa, the Udoni 9 on November 10, 1995 was of course, first and foremost, a tragedy for those families, for the Udoni people, for all of Nigeria. But the story itself became a thunderclap around the world, a lightning bolt across not just the oil industry, but business multinational corporations around the world. And I, I was personally thunderstruck. I was at the time in a very different role at the US Department of State where I had no direct connection to these issues. I was the chief speechwriter for the Secretary of State, the foreign, foreign minister. Um, but put in the back of my mind that I, at some point I wanted to get involved in these issues. But I then had a, another role in 1997 and eight that is gonna sound, um, like a convoluted path, but it was actually one that led me directly uh, to these issues in beginning in early 1999 when I met you, uh, Salil, as well as Bronwyn. Um, and that is, I was the deputy to the uh, Undersecretary of State um, for Economic and Business Affairs, Stuart Eisenstadt, who led an extraordinary diplomatic effort to hold to account the Swiss banks, German industrial companies, and others for the hidden dimensions um, of the Holocaust, slave labor, um, the confiscation of assets of, of Jews. 
And I spent day and night for two years, you know, as his deputy directing both the historical research and the, and the international diplomacy. And the point there is that it was an extraordinary effort and not just the US government, we, we led it, but a couple dozen other governments were involved in establishing a principle we hoped, um, not just a legal, but a political and moral precedent for uh, at least retrospective corporate accountability, in this case for the Holocaust. Um, related to financial uh, and economic losses. And so coming out of that role in early 1999 and then becoming the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for what we call democracy, human rights, and labor, the State Department and, and being in charge of our bilateral human rights diplomacy around the world, I, I was very motivated to try to do something related to corporate responsibility. And, and frankly, it was not a long um, process of consideration to land very quickly um, on the oil and mining industries, conflict zones, security forces, gross corruption, terrible governance. And it was an instant step to the Niger Delta, Indonesia, Colombia, and, and a number of other countries around the world. Um, and, you know, I was aware of the litigation. I hadn't met Paul, I didn't meet him until some years later, but, but aware of the litigation at the time and aware of the, made aware by you, Salil, when we first met, uh, I think in the spring of 1999, of the work of Amnesty and developing some very early human rights principles for companies, aware of the pioneering work of the Amnesty uh, UK section business and human rights group founded by the late great Sir Jeffrey Chandler, um, and then had the chance to meet uh, Bronwyn. Um, and by the time I met Bronwyn, and I think you, Salil, for the first time in London in June of 1999, I'd already formulated a, a broad initiative to use the convening power of the US government uh, to try to bring together uh, NGOs at the time North country-based international NGOs, uh, principally Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, but a number of others, including International Alert, together with the major US and UK oil and mining companies, and together in cooperation with the UK Foreign Office. And it was essential to try to do this on a transatlantic, if not global basis. Um, and, and, and I can't emphasize enough how important the London connection was because you, Salio, were doing this, starting to do this work on behalf of Amnesty, Bronwyn on behalf of Human Rights Watch, together with her American colleague, um, uh, Arvind Ganeshan, um, based in Washington, who became a close partner of mine. Um, but also BP and Shell were beginning to wrestle with these issues, particularly around security forces. Uh, and so there was a partly open door already uh, to then deploy the convening power and, and diplomatic skill of the State Department. It was, it was a huge, huge process. And it was an instant uh, recognition, frankly, on my part that it would not be possible to pursue in the short to medium term of several years, a legislative or regulatory route. Um, as much as I believe in legally binding standards and felt that way at the time, but that we needed to try to create some kind of a multi-stakeholder process, a, a phrase hardly used at the time, that could at least start by developing uh, a, a, a joint standard that could have some global impact. Uh, and the only precedents at the time were the two related initiatives that are both um, very much alive and well a couple decades later, both focused on, on labor rights in the apparel sector principally, the Ethical Trading Initiative founded in London and the Fair Labor Association founded in Washington. So those were some models that, that I was able to, to work with, um, at least be aware of. But we put the voluntary, what became the voluntary principles on security and human rights together uh, in calendar year 2000 after a tremendous amount of consultations and learnings on my part and others um, in, in 1999. I can't emphasize enough how uh, challenging it was initially to engage the U.S. oil companies, even more challenging the U.S. mining companies, um, and not that Shell and BP were a piece of cake then or now, um, but on a comparative base, 
practice, it was really important to get them together in the room with the US oil companies in particular. So the voluntary principles um, were, were done and announced um, by Madeleine Albright and Robin Cook, the late uh, foreign secretary of the UK in December of 2000 and are marking their 20th anniversary um, in, in just a month now um, and uh, are still at it. And so I can't emphasize also enough my own view at the time and ever since that multi-stakeholder initiatives, voluntary standards are an important piece of the overall architecture, but only a piece. The other key pillars, of course, are litigation, where Paul has been a global leader, NGO research and campaigning, not least on the part of Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and many, many others, and above all, of course, civil society, local communities in Nigeria and around the world, um, but also over the years, responsible investors, others who have gotten into the act from a financial perspective. Uh, and we now have, of course, a much broader architecture. But um, I would say that the uh, that this tragedy of November 10, 1995, was absolutely the founding force forcing event that captured the attention and the imagination, as tragic as it was, of a number of us around the world to do what we could. And it's it's so sobering to hear Nemo's um, assessment of the bleak situation. And we can have no illusions of that, but I do think that we can take um, uh, some hope um, that it was the, this event, this event more than any other in the last quarter century in the whole world that put human rights inescapably, irreversibly on the agenda for business around the world. And it just absolutely crystallized some of the initial issues, galvanized um, action, which remains incomplete and inconsistent. But we have got um, the elements of the architecture and now we've got to you know, uh, use all the tools I should have mentioned already and just in a quick aside, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, EITI, which also um, came partly out of this whole uh, experience in Nigeria of trying to deal with revenue transparency and corruption. And of course, that was one of the critical dimensions of Bronwyn's um, very influential uh, report for Human Rights Watch, The Price of Oil. So I think we've come to understand the multiple dimensions of human rights issues. Yes, human rights violations, security forces, um, but the depths of poor governance, corruption, environmental degradation. And what we learned and saw on that horrible day, November 10, 1995, what we've learned and tried to do ever since, I think leaves a legacy of understanding and, and trying to commit ourselves to dealing with human rights in this very broad and deep way, using every approach, every tool we can in a complementary uh, fashion. Thank you, Bernard. That's a very, very good summary of, of what led you to this and where we are now. Bronwyn, looking back at not just the report, but uh, what's happening now in the Niger Delta, and I know you're not, I appreciate you're not directly connected within, uh, with it, uh, but uh, you did say in the lead up to our meeting that you know it had a huge impact on who you are today. Um, uh, so what have we achieved? And um, by, by we, I mean collectively, I'm not talking about human rights researchers and activists, but what has the world achieved? I mean, it, would something like this happen again? I mean, or are, are we now a better place or are we in a worse situation? Well, things like this can always happen again. One never, one's never won a fight like this. Um, I think, I mean, looking back over 25 years, and it was, I mean, I, you know, the Niger Delta, I haven't been there for some years, uh, and I regret that because it, it did, you know, lodged itself in my heart in terms of, of, of uh, the situation there, the causes there, and the extent to which I think, you know, oil industry in particular, we all have to say, well, we're all responsible for this. It's actually in a way easy to say it's the oil companies or whatever, you know, we all drive cars and heat our houses and, you know, take flights and so forth. So that's one of the complications about the oil industry is that you have to take some personal responsibility as well about how, how you think about the questions. And I think that, I mean, having heard uh, Nimmo's um, 
discussion about the current situation. I think it's perfectly clear that the situation in the Delta has not improved greatly in many respects. Uh, the oil pollution, I mean, there are some massive spills, not only in Algoniland, but several others around uh, the Delta that remain hugely damaging for the people living close to them. Um, the impact of um, the impact of the oil industry in general is, an, is enormous, and that's not just direct oil pollution, uh, but also um, you know disturbance of water channels, uh, you know dis uh, water drainage, and those types of things as well. Uh, there are a lot of less obvious ways in which the oil industry has been damaging, uh, including the damage done by massive amounts of money sloshing about with very little accountability and the competition and violence that that generates around getting a hold of those resources. So I wouldn't want to, you know, I want to recognize all of that, but then park it and say, right, but we have, a, we have had some achievements. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the Sarawiwa case was a turning point in terms of the international discussion about the responsibilities of business and human rights. And we are, you know, we've moved from the uh, principles on security and, and, uh, and human rights into the discussion that led ultimately to the guiding principles on business and human rights, voluntary principles for the companies. And we are now talking about a treaty, which since it would be a treaty would be binding on states, but nonetheless create some obligations on states to regulate the companies more effectively. And I think that normative shift in the context of an international law regime, which has historically said that states are sovereign and only states are the subject of international law, is a big normative shift. The question is, of course, is that, oh, you know, is that enough to really make a difference? Uh, and I think we're not sure yet. Is this, are we, are we discussing micro improvements in the, and not making a difference to the macro problem? I hope that we're addressing the macro problem, but I by no means think that we've addressed it yet. But I, but I want to, looking back, uh, you know, for this 25 year anniversary, the mobilization that Ken Sariwa led of the Ogoni people to bring their attention to the world is the starting point. I mean, you know, of course there was the anti-apartheid movement. It's not like there were not other other efforts to try and look at the responsibility of business for human rights, but this was an absolutely key moment, and especially around the, the particular responsibilities of extractive industries. Absolutely, and you know, you, I, I often say when I talk to people about business and human rights that there are certain things which are necessary, but they are not necessarily sufficient. I mean, and, and I think that's what we need to know, that all these efforts are crucial. And I'm so glad you brought up the issue of the treaty, because I was going to um, raise that issue. And, and Paul, you have a long experience of um, international law building and, you know, the importance of international law, which, of course, uh, not everybody in the US system likes the idea of international standards and so on. And it's a long struggle you've fought for a very long time. But I was just curious about it, that do you think there is need for a treaty? Probably the answer is yes. What should be its scope? What can be done? And, and, and how do we move forward with that? Well, I think it's there's obviously there's a need for a treaty. Um, whether that's feasible in the short term, I don't know. Um, you know, in, in thinking about the progress, I mean, it seems to me that certainly when I started in this enterprise 40 years ago, I thought it would be possible to make more progress in that 40 year period. Um, the thing I'm encouraged by is that I think that we have made a lot of progress in terms of um, making people think about the need for these norms to apply, the need for corporations to behave in ways that are, are not unrestrained and where they have to um, compensate people and they need to behave in a better way. And I think that that, in, certainly in my dealings with corporations, um, I have seen that. For example, you know, I've been involved in at least a couple of cases where we have settled and gotten relief for people where the corporations have insisted that they don't want that to be publicly known. They don't want the fact that there's a settlement to be publicly known, but they would like to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's progress. Right? I mean, it, it, and it's, it's halting and sometimes it goes the other way. 
Um, I think that in a lot of corporations, there are people that want to do the right thing and people that want to take a hard line, right? And the hardliners often win. Sometimes they don't. Um, I take heart in the students that I talk to and the, the, the generations coming up who seem to accept the principles that we've fought for, right? That's their starting point. And they're thinking about new ways to organize, new ways to reach out to the people that have power in international society to make them change their ways on these issues, on climate justice, on, on other kinds of issues. And I think that though, you know, I, when I, and you know, my daughter is one of those people. Um, and when I talk to her, I get a lot of, uh, I'm optimistic that, that her generation will do better than ours did. They'll take it a step further. And I think, you know, I, I think of this enterprise as a hundred year enterprise, not a 40 year enterprise. And so that's hard when you're in the middle of the beginning of it, you don't get to see the end. But I do think that I'm optimistic that, that we will get there, right? That, that there will be a system that is based on human rights more than it is now. But I think it's gonna be slow and I think we're gonna have setbacks. And you know, I see that in almost every area that I work in in civil rights and in police reform, there are always two steps forward, one step back, you know, you know, I think that's just the way that it is, right? In, in, in the human experience. But I do think that all the work that we've done has been important. I think that it's set the stage for the next advances um, that the next generation will, will do. And I, I think that one of the lessons that I hope that everybody takes to, uh, about this is that you just have to keep at it. And I think that is Ken, Ken Saruwa's legacy, right? I mean, it's, you just got to keep finding ways to do it. If you blocked in one way, you find another way um, to keep moving forward. And that's what I think people who are doing this kind of litigation, you know, we understand that we're going to lose sometimes. Um, we do a fair amount, um, but we win sometimes. And every one of those um, victories is another building block for the future. And I think that's how you have to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, that's a, that's sobering and inspiring at the same time uh, of how we look at the situation. Now, all four of us have, in our, in our own ways, you know, tried to move things forward step by step. But the people who are at the front line are the defenders, the human rights defenders. Ken Saruya was a distinguished example of that, but there are many others we know. and. Uh, Five years ago, we did a report, uh, which was actually launched by Maria Saroviva, um, Ken's wife in London, on, on the defenders and how they have to, um, how the situation hasn't changed much. And the space has been shrinking for the defenders. The, the global politics is also acting in a particular way. Bennett, I know you worked a lot and thought very deeply about it. And you also feel companies have a role there. What would you say to that? Where, where should one look at? Okay. Sure. So, you know, we, we can never make progress unless we're realistic. And again, Nemo um, has injected a dose of reality here, but we'll never make progress unless we're optimistic um, and, and committed. And one of the grounds for optimism the last several years is exactly um, this challenge of recognizing the plight of human rights defenders around the world and the broader uh, pressure that civil society and civic freedoms have come under, uh, not only in autocratic states, but um, uh, sadly in democracies um, that have become increasingly illiberal. Uh, but there has been a very vibrant uh, discussion and a tremendous amount of work um, the last several years in the, the Institute for Human Rights and Business report five years ago was one of the uh, key uh, contributions to this agenda. I spent much of my time the last several years working with the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, International Service for Human Rights to produce a, a whole framework for companies to think about um, whether and if so, how to engage in situations related to civic freedoms, but very specifically to intervene 
on behalf of human rights defenders. And the work was absolutely directly inspired by what Shell did not do and the consequences of that failure to act leading to the tragedy of November 10, 1995, but combined with the pressure on defenders and civil society globally over the last decade. And I think it's, it's reasonable now to observe that the whole discussion around business and human rights defenders and more broadly the role of corporate activism and advocacy has moved um, way up the agenda of the global business and human rights uh, community. And it's never been uh, more vital. And it all goes back to what happened and what didn't happen on November 10, uh, 1995. So I have some optimism, particularly as I think not so much about you know, the reports, you know, Salil, you and I produced and, and other work um, that, that has uh, brought this, this challenge back to the forefront. But I'm inspired by some of the actions that have been taken by companies, um, some that are known publicly, others that have not been disclosed publicly, given some of the sensitivities with home country, uh, really host country governments. Um, and they're inc inconsistent. Um, there aren't enough of them, but we are seeing in the last couple of years more companies willing to uh, protect defenders in specific situations, and especially more companies speaking out um, on human rights and civic freedoms, um, whether it's LGBTQ rights or it's immigrants in the U.S. and, and, and so forth. Um, but look, it's it, it, the progress is halting, it's limited, the actions are inconsistent, and what we really need is a much stronger architecture of uh, law, regulation, litigation, in addition to um, uh, these advocacy efforts by companies. And I think that as states continue to largely more or less fail in their duty to protect human rights, there's going to be even more pressure. There is more pressure on the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. And that's a pallid verb, respect human rights. Companies need to be protecting human rights, even if the guiding principles won't be uh, using that exact verb for some years to come. But that can be the legacy of November 10, 1995, is that there's a corporate responsibility to respect, but also to protect human rights. Absolutely. And just for those of us who are not human rights nerds, to use the phrase that Bronwyn, you used quite rightly, uh, because we will be having viewers from uh, various parts of the world with various understanding and various uh, levels of interest. This is purely a human rights law terminology, respect, protect, and fulfill, and uh, you know, that do no harm and ensure others don't harm and so on. And of course, companies should do the right thing inevitably, and which is something that uh, uh, always worth bearing in mind. I am conscious of time, so I'm going to give each of you probably a minute each uh, for some final words before I, uh, I make my concluding remarks. Bronwyn, let me start with you. So I think a very key difference that's happened over the last 25 years, that it's no longer for companies simply to say, no, we can't get involved in that, it's too political because I think there is a recognition that at least if you are a large extractive industry company, you know, these are huge transnational corporations, not doing anything is just as much of a political choice as doing something. It's saying that you think it's absolutely fine what is going on. Uh, and of course, companies intervene all the time in relation to things like the tax rates that apply to themselves, which are also very political decisions. Um, and I think looking back at the legacy of Sarawiwa, that. The shift, I mean, of course, many other people, but one of the things was, no, there has to be some responsibility here. Faced with a situation like this, there has to be some responsibility. The other thing I would say is that, I mean, directly in Nigeria, Kensara, we were inspired a whole generation of leaders, of local leaders, people organizing, uh, trying to uh, improve uh, the situation in the Niger Delta some of whom got diverted into their own money-making and uh, less salubrious exercises, but nonetheless a cohort who are absolutely committed to the issues. He inspired a generation in Nigeria. And I know for a fact he, he inspired a generation across Africa as well. There were, you know, the, the, the work that he did was, was so important and remained. And I think 
uh, I mean, thank you for inviting me uh, and thank you for organizing this because I think his name deserves to be brought to the top again to say this is an ongoing struggle which we need to carry on engaging in. And thank you for mentioning the Nigerian uh, movement that is spawned because I do want those of us who are watching this to know that we have another panel called View from the Ground with Nigerian voices. So it is not something, and we have to listen and learn from them. And it's not that uh, we from outside have some kind of a magic formula for them. We are, I, I, I approach this with, with that humility. I just wanted to be, and all of us, I'm, I'm sure all of you share that view. Uh, Paul, uh, final words from you. But I, I also thank you for inviting me for this. I think that um, I have used the Ken Sarawiwa case in my teaching for many years. And, and I think it's a story that is very inspirational to the next generation that's going to take up this torch, right? And so I think that, that this is very important to remember. Um, but I think that it, I think people are remembering what he brought to this um, on a regular basis. I know many of my colleagues that were involved in the case um, use his legacy for teaching purposes also. And it, and it has a power. Um, and I think the most important power is not giving up, right? And, and, I, and I think that's, that's really what his memory should be. Uh, remember, and I think also to remember, unfortunately, Ken Sarawiwa Jr., you know, who also passed um, and who was a, a major force to carry his father's legacy forward. But I think other members of the family continue to do that. Um, and I think that's, that's also very important. Um, you know, I've, I've met other members of the family over the years during the litigation and they're very inspirational family. And um, I certainly, it, it, thinking about um, being on this panel made me think back to the story to what happened, to what he did, what he accomplished. Uh, the idea that half the population of Ogoni came out to that rally in the beginning. I mean, that's, it's pretty amazing, right? And so it's a, it's a really important story to, to, to bring forth to every generation from now on. Thank you, Paul and Bennett. I couldn't agree more with, um, with, with, Paul just said, as well as with Bronwyn's comments. I mean, you know, this happens in, in history um, on many occasions where a tragedy is just absolutely shocking, but then becomes a galvanizing event. And that was certainly the case here. It cannot um, uh, understate the inspiration that came um, from this uh, tragedy um, for so many in, in Bogoni land and in Niger Delta, around Nigeria, around Africa and around, around the world and the commitments um, that it spawned in, in all of us. Um, and, you know, I've felt privileged as a, you know, white American guy who at the time had a chance, you know, as American diplomat to work with others and, and you know, I, I think that it, we all are very conscious that it's with the communities on the ground, with the defenders, um, with the rights holders, where the struggle is most important. But this is a reminder 25 years on that we all have to do, can do our parts wherever we sit, wherever we are around the world. It takes multiple actors, multiple tools, uh, and I think that we've come a long, long way in these 25 years, not nearly enough, hardly anywhere in the Delta, tragically, um, but hopefully around the world. And it was this event more than any other that, that caught our attention and lit the path. Thank you, Bennett. Bronman, the key message I took from you here is that there is complicity in silence, which is something that, you know, Nick Howen and David Petrasek and fine people like that used to tell us about. And I think it's something worth remembering. Paul, the fact that we should never give up. I think that's a very important uh, message that I get out of what you're saying that, you know, it is a long, long struggle. And Bennett, the fact that, you know, we have to work together to get where we need to. And of course, by listening to the people on the ground. Uh, you know, I grew up in India, so I like to quote Gandhi whenever I get a chance. So I'm going to say something by him, but I'm going to end with Bole Shoinka.
Gandhi said that when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. And on a sobering note, what Wole Shoinka says about uh, uh, what happened in Niger Delta in those days, and may those days end, and may those days never return. I find no poetry in slaughter fields, no lyric grace, redemptive passion, no. Only that which came and went as others, the blaze of empires, salvation's ashes, the crunch of cinders in time skull the sack. Ronbin, Paul, Bennett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Sunil. Thanks, Will. Bye. Thank you.